So tonight, uh, we're going to have Elder Karufi is going to come, and he's going to speak about unconditional election, the you in TULIP. Uh, the acrostic TULIP helps us to kind of give us something of a system and a way to explain and to understand our theology. And they're all connected to each other. You can't just have a T and you can't just have an L. you got to have all of them. You know, so we started last week looking at total depravity, that people are born in a state of sin and misery and separated from God as a result of that. So how does one get saved? Well, it takes grace. How does that grace manifest itself in God electing us to himself? So that's what we're going to learn about tonight. Dr. Karufi, if you would come up and teach us what the Lord has put on your heart. Good evening. See if this works on the first try. That would be fantastic. Something buzzed. That's a good sign. Okay. Um, JP, I'm just going to check this out. Okay, great. Um, it's great to be here with all of you on the Lord's Day. It's a great, uh, great time to be with God's people um, at the end of the day. And um, as Pastor noted, um, we're going to talk today about the second part of TULIP, uh, namely unconditional election. And uh, this doctrine oftentimes is referred to as the doctrine of predestination. And uh, we'll talk a little bit about the distinction between election and predestination in a little while. But before we begin, why don't we pray together and ask the Lord's blessing on his word and this teaching. Heavenly Father, we do give you praise uh, tonight for who you are. We do thank you that you are the gracious God who, uh, who bestowed your love upon us. We thank you that you chose us before the foundation of the world. And uh, God, I pray that, uh, that, that there would be nothing that would be said this evening that wouldn't accurately reflect your word. I pray that you would uh, bless it, that you would nourish our souls with it, and that we would leave here confident uh, in our standing in you. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. Um, before I jump into um, the doctrine itself, uh, I wanted to start with a quote from Charles Spurgeon and um, see if I can manage two sets of slides at the same time. Spurgeon said, if God enters in, into a covenant with unfallen man, man is so insignificant a creature that it must be an act of gracious condescension on, on the Lord's part. But if God enters into covenant with sinful man, he is then so offensive a creature that it must be on God's part an act of pure, free, rich, sovereign grace. And last week, Dr. Reiswig did a thorough job of explaining just how offensive a creature we are before we are regenerated by God's Holy Spirit. And so um, to, to really grasp uh, this concept, we need to dig in a little bit into God's Word. Uh, and just a brief outline, uh, what I'd like to do first is sort of give an overview of this doctrine and make sure that we all understand what it means, what it says, and what it doesn't say. Uh, and then I'll 
kind of give for, a formal kind of definition almost of an unconditional election. And then we'll look at a lot of scripture uh, that sort of demonstrates that this concept of God's electing of people really permeates the whole of scripture. Uh, and then I'll briefly discuss some objections to the doctrine. There are, there are things about the doctrine that some people don't like um, and that they think are uh, not accurate in some sense. Uh, and then lastly, I hope to close with some practical applications or implications of the doctrine and why it should be such a comfort uh, to those of us who are among God's people. Okay. All right. So first of all, um, election needs to be viewed within the larger context of God's sovereignty and that attribute of God that he is, in fact, uh, sovereign. And to demonstrate this, there are, I hope that's visible to everyone, three verses that I want to, that I want to read to you. Out of Psalm 135, verse 6, um, whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all deeps. Proverbs 16, 4 says, The Lord has made everything for its own purpose, even the wicked for the day of evil. And in Job 42, 2, uh, after the Lord has taken Job to the woodshed, uh, basically says, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. And so this doctrine of God's sovereignty is really important to understand. God has before. Before the foundation of the world, he has sovereignly ordained all that comes to pass. He has decreed all that will happen. And it's within the backdrop of sovereignty that we have to understand that election is part of that plan of redemption. Okay. So, election, as I said, is, is one aspect of God's eternal decree. And uh, for those of you who do not come from a confessional background, uh, uh, I would encourage you to get a copy of the Westminster Confession of Faith. And chapter 3 of the Confession deals exclusively with the idea of God's eternal decree. And election is where, uh, this chapter of the Confession is where you will find the discussion on election. Um, <clears throat> it follows directly from total depravity, as I mentioned uh, from last week. And what did we learn about that? The nature of fallen or unregenerate man is totally corrupted by sin. And as Josiah mentioned last time, it doesn't mean that people who are not regenerated don't do things that are generally deemed as good by society. But what it does mean is that man in his unregenerate state cannot come to God, doesn't want to come to God, doesn't have a desire to come to God, and doesn't do anything that can be viewed as righteous before God's sight. So people are universally deserving of God's condemnation, uh, and they're unwilling and unable to come to God, as I said. So, God, for his own good pleasure, has purposed to elect some unto salvation. Otherwise, none would be saved. Okay. So we don't want to spend too much time uh, with my words, we'd really like to see what the Lord has to say about this. So in the book of Ephesians in chapter 1, really uh, chapters 1 through 3 of Ephesians give us a great, great exposition of the doctrine of election. And I'd like for us to just read this um, and just let God's word sort of um, fall over your, over your ears and take it in and listen to what he says. 
Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. And then continuing in chapter 1 and verses 11 and 12, in him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. And of course, Paul is writing to uh, Christians in Ephesus. Um, this is not a, an epistle that is written in general to people, but rather to believers. And um, we noticed some really important key phrases. He chose us, he predestined us according to his will, to the praise of his grace in which he has blessed us. Uh, and so you'll notice that there's a lot of verb action here on the part of God. He chose, he predestined, he blessed it's all him. Not a whole lot about us in here. Okay. Um, <clears throat> again, the Westminster Confession of Faith is not scripture, uh, but it is extremely scriptural and does a great job of summarizing the core doctrines of the faith. And this is chapter 3, paragraph 5 uh, from the Confession. I thought it would be useful for us to at least... Uh, note how closely this uh, reads with the scriptures that we just read. Those of mankind that are predestinated unto life, God, before the foundation of the world was laid, according to his eternal and immutable purpose, and the secret counsel and good pleasure of his will, hath chosen in Christ unto everlasting glory, out of his free grace and love alone, without any foresight or faith or good, of faith or good works, or perseverance in either of them, or any other thing in the creature as conditions or causes, moving him thereunto, and all to the praise of his glorious grace. And that sounds like a mouthful. And what does it say? In essence, it says that God elected people for salvation before the foundation of the world, and it had nothing to do with them. Not based on anything that they would do, or that they would believe, but he elected them for the purpose of his own goodwill, for his own glorious grace, to bring praise to himself, to his grace, right? So, we're going to dive in a little bit more. Let's start to talk about what this means. Um, what is meant by election? Well, God doesn't elect the way we elect. Uh, whenever you have an election, for example, for the president of the United States, what do we do? Uh, candidates present themselves, they prevent their, present their case before voters, and voters go out on voting day, cast a vote, and the candidate who gets the most votes wins the election, or in the case of a presidential election, the most electoral college votes wins the election, right? Well, on what basis do you cast a vote? on the basis of the values of the candidate. 
Do the candidates' values align with my own? Do they believe what I believe? Do I believe that the candidate is going to vote in the way that I would hope that he or she votes? Well, that's not at all how God elects us because our election of a candidate for a political office is based entirely on their merits, their intellect, their background, their experience. That is not at all the way that God elects people. Okay? So, first of all, what is meant by the biblical doctrine of election? Well, election is a synonym for choice, and election is God's foreordained choice of some for salvation. We just read that in uh, the Ephesians passage and in, also in the Westminster Confession. This is a, the next point is a critical point that I, I hope makes sense to you. Um, we'll stay on it until it does make sense. Election is not salvation. This is a critical point. Election is unto salvation. In other words, election is the act in which God marks out certain individuals for salvation. Election does not equal salvation. Election is unto salvation. Now, we can use our analogy of a political election in, in some sense here, in that when we elect someone to office, they don't immediately become uh, a holder of that office. They are, for example, president-elect for a time. So in some sense, we're like president-elect in the sense that we have been elected before time, but we are not saved we are not justified until God brings us to the point of believing, and then we are justified. So it's critical that we understand that election is not synonymous with salvation. It is something that precedes salvation. Does that make sense? Okay, good. All right. Well, I mentioned predestination. An election, as a special case of predestination, deals specifically with the predestination of people, where they're going to be ultimately, what is their final destination? Now, why do I say that election is a special case of predestination? Because God predestines lots of things uh, that are not related to salvation. For example, God predestined Jesus to come and die and pay the penalty for the sins of his people on the cross. That was predestined. Judas, we believe, was predestined to betray him. That's a form of predestination. God has predestined that the heaven, this heaven and this earth are going to pass away and there will be a new heaven and a new earth. That's a form of predestination. This form of predestination strictly deals with man's final destination and where he will be. Okay? All right. So what is meant by unconditional? I was thinking of a good illustration that I could give about unconditional election uh, and conditional election and um, <clears throat> thought about my kids. And we've been having some trouble at home with, uh, you know, getting chores done and some things like that. And, uh, and so, you know, conditional, conditional election looks something like this. If you clean your room every day and you wash the dishes in the evenings that you're assigned and you don't back talk and you don't... And you don't fuss when you're asked to do something that's perfectly reasonable within the household. If you satisfy all of those conditions, then you will receive your allowance. If there is any shortfall in any of those areas, then the allowance can be deducted or eliminated altogether. That's extremely conditional, right? You do what I ask, what your mother and I ask, and you get rewarded. 
That's totally conditional. Um, <clears throat> if, you, if you don't do that, then you know the consequences, Ethan. Um, so, that is the antithesis of God's unconditional election. And so, God's choice is not conditioned on anything in us. Um, and this is really what we mean by grace, right? That we're saved by grace in the sense that there's nothing that made us more lovable to God. There's nothing in us that necessarily attracted him to us, right? There's no condition that, right, that God is interested in, in us. He doesn't look at Bridget and say, she's attractive, I think I'll elect her. Or Pastor Campbell's really smart, I think I'll elect him. No, nothing of the sort. Um, another aspect is that, and by the way, I'm not glossing over Romans 9, 11 to 16. We're going to come to that passage in some depth. But I just want to make sure that you know that uh, this is scriptural, what I'm saying. I'm not making it up and shooting from the hip. Um, but no past, present, or future acts or responses influence God's sovereign choice. And um, the Westminster Confession of Faith alluded to this, that there is no amount of works or faith, either currently or foreseen in the future, that would make us to be elected by God. So does that make sense? Okay. All right, good. Now, if I were to summarize everything I just said, what I basically said is that there's nothing you and I could have done to have been elected by God unto salvation. And I think everyone in this room, I could be wrong, I think everyone in this room would agree with that. So, you say, well, I have an objection. Isn't faith in Christ necessary to be saved? And the answer to that question is, Yes, of course it is. Election is unconditional, but justification is absolutely conditional on faith. Right? In Romans uh, 10 9, anybody know what Romans 10 9 says? Hmm? If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, right, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. Hebrews 11.6 says, For without faith it is impossible to please God. So faith is absolutely necessary for, for salvation, for justification. Right? And in fact, the scripture teaches that anyone who believes will be saved. Anyone who believes will be saved. Whosoever believeth in the Son of God shall not perish but have everlasting life. Everyone who believes will be saved. Will be saved. That's absolutely biblical. The question is, who will believe? And those who believe are those whom God gives faith to believe. Those are God's elect. So God produces the kind of faith that believes and leads to justification. Now, we'd like to look at at least three passages of Scripture that help us to see this in John chapter 6. Great chapter to dwell on for a while, but uh, in verse 60, uh, excuse me, verse 44, no man can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. John 6, 63 says, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. This is Jesus speaking. And in Acts um, chapter 13, verse 48, 
after Paul and Barnabas have proclaimed to the Gentiles that salvation has come to them. The Gentiles, when they heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And it says, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. So those who were appointed to eternal life believed. All right, so let's do a very quick review before we dive into some scripture. Um, it's kind of like a mini quiz. See if a uh, pastor's paying attention. Just kidding. Uh, when did God elect some unto salvation? Before the foundation of the world. Ephesians 1, 4, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. On what basis did God elect some unto salvation? Good. According to his will, into the praise of his glorious grace. And we can see that in Ephesians 1, 11. Why did God elect some unto salvation? Well, I'm, a, I'm sort of an applied mathematician, so we'll start with the extreme cases first. Uh, God could have done a couple of things. God could have chosen to elect everyone. Right? All of humanity was ruined in misery as a result of the fall. He could have chosen to elect everyone. He didn't do that. That would be universalism. And we don't believe that God has elected everyone unto salvation. Uh, on the other hand, he could have elected none. And he would still be a just God because all are deserving of condemnation as a result of the fall. But he didn't choose any of the, either of those two, he chose to elect some. Now, when you start asking questions like, why did God do something? If it's not explicit in the word, it's very hard to answer a question like that. You know, well, why did God choose to do it this way? I believe this is part of a, mis part of a mystery that I don't know that we will fully understand uh, until we see him face to face. Um, but we do know that, that, it's, that it's true because his word clearly tells us this, right? Um, I do like this little phrase that R.C. Sproul has used in a lot of different teachings. He says, <clears throat> some receive mercy from God, namely his elect. Others receive justice and none receive injustice. So if we have a population of all guilty people and some receive mercy, there is no injustice that's done to the, the ones who remain guilty. Um, so it's kind of a hard thing to hear in some ways. It's especially for those of us who have <clears throat> friends or loved ones who we think at this time, at least in the information that we have before us as finite human beings, we don't think that some of our loved ones are saved. We don't think that they have any interest in the things of God. And um, we don't know that there's any hope for them. Well, I would, I would say that there's no reason not to have hope. Um, we keep praying. Um, we, we trust the Lord and we pray that he would uh, do a work and uh, extend his grace to even those people that we know that are close to us. So, okay. So who are God's elect? Another easy question, I guess. Well, we don't know. 
But we do know that they're from every tribe, language, people, and nation, as Revelation 5.9 tells us. So God's elect are everywhere. They're all over the earth. Um, they're in every culture. They're in every country. They're in all four corners of the earth. Um, in fact, in Mark 13.27, it says, Jesus says, uh, excuse me, it says he will send out, speaking of Jesus uh, at a second coming, send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, uh, from the from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. So we don't know who God's elect are, <clears throat> but he does. And, and so when we go around proclaiming God's truth, when we go around sharing the gospel, when we proclaim God's grace uh, and we proclaim his goodness, um, we do so not knowing whether someone we're speaking to is one of God's elect or not. But we do it. We do it because we are commanded to do it. Okay, I want to just go through some passages of Scripture in the Old Testament and the New um, to sort of demonstrate that this permeates the Scriptures. <clears throat> Genesis 12, 1, 2, Abraham um, is really the father of <clears throat> all of, all of the household of faith. In Genesis 12, um, the Lord called Abram. He said, now go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And then, of course, we saw God's electing of Isaac and of Jacob. And then uh, we look at how God worked mightily in, in Joseph to save <clears throat> the nation. Uh, in Deuteronomy 7, uh, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. Psalm 33:12 says, uh, Blessed is the nation whose God is, Lord, is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. Uh, Psalm 65, 4, Blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. Uh, we shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple. Okay. I realized that I did not advance my slides. Should have looked at my wife. She probably would have warned me of that. Sorry. Okay. A little bit more from Ephesians chapter 2. These are the, the verses of scripture that I think many of us have committed to memory and uh, know quite well. But God, starting in verses 4 and 5, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. For by grace, this is in verse 8, you have been saved through faith. And this not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Uh, 2 Timothy 1.9, uh, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Uh, in 2 Timothy 2.10, Paul writes, therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect. And in Revelation 13.8, I did it again, didn't I? <laughs> Just like get up here. <laughs> Just hand this to you. Um, everyone whose name, this is uh, 
in Revelation chapter 13, verse 8, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. And so um, really all throughout Scripture, we see this pointing to election and um, God's choosing a people for himself. So we want to look a little bit more deeply in Romans. Um, Romans chapter 8, chapters 8 and 9 are um, just extremely important um, chapters of, of the New Testament to commit to memory, if you can. Uh, our kids just memorized Romans 8, and I think some of the other kids in the congregation have done that. Romans 9 is, is equally important and um, really, really uh, hammers home this idea of God's election. And so uh, in Romans 8, chap uh, verses 29 to 30, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And I'm sure that at least in some circles, you've probably heard that this passage of scripture refers to the order of salvation or what's often called the golden chain of salvation uh, in which God foreknows some people, predestines them, calls them, then justifies them, and then they are ultimately glorified. And um, we sort of want to hone in a little bit on this word foreknew. And, and, um, and the reason is it can be a little bit confusing as to what this means and so, um, so really there are at least two dominant views about what it means that God foreknew those whom he predestined. And I'll tell you that, what happened JP? Here we go. The non-reformed view is also known as the prescient view. And it goes something like this. God knows in advance that you will believe in him when the gospel is offered to you, and on the basis of the fact that you will believe, then God elects you. Okay, that's the, called the prescient view, and it is probably the predominant view in non-reformed circles um, everywhere. I mean, uh, most evangelical churches that are not reformed hold this view, uh, that election is on the basis of your future belief. We don't believe that that's what the verse means. Uh, the Reformed view is that the word foreknew is actually, or can be more accurately translated, foreloved. And it has a, a deeper meaning than just knowing in advance, right? So obviously God knows everyone and everything in the future. God knows everything in advance. So it's not, it almost doesn't make sense for it to simply mean that God foreknew. And the passage doesn't say that God foreknew that people would believe. It just says God foreknew. So what does it mean that God knows in advance? And I think you know that the word know isn't just having a basic knowledge about someone or something. It's deeper than that. And so um, what, is, what does it mean to be known by God in the scriptures? And uh, there are different ways in which this construction of of no is used. And in, and in Deuteronomy 7, um, this is 
speaking to Israel, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. So this, this knowing is this idea that God has set his love on a people or individuals. In Amos 3.2, God speaking again to Israel, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. So is it the case that God didn't know the other nations of the earth? Does God not, is, is God not aware of other nations of the earth? Yes, I did it again. Thank you very much. Uh, and, right? So it, it clearly doesn't mean that God just has knowledge of the nations or the families. Um, he, I have known you, Israel, among all the families. When God called Jeremiah to be a prophet, he said, before I formed you in Jeremiah 1, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. This one's not as positive. On, the day that, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, why did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. It's the same construction. In Romans 11, 2, Paul is making the case that God has not forsaken his people, Israel. He says, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. In other words, those whom he had placed his special love upon beforehand. And of course, Romans 9, verses 10 to 16 is one of the most important passages, I think, uh, in terms of establishing and providing scriptural proof for the doctrine. Not only so, this is Romans 9, verses 10 to 16, not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born, and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Um. I'm not sure what to say about that passage other than it's pretty self-explanatory. Um, why does God, why, does he, why did he elect before they were born, before they had any opportunity to do good or bad? For the purpose of election, right? For God's purpose of election. Not because of works, but because of him who calls. Okay. So, very, I hope very briefly, some objections to this doctrine. Um, if you have serious objections to anything I've said tonight, please see Pastor Campbell, and he'll be glad to field all your questions.
questions and complaints. Um, the biggest complaint against this doctrine is that it seems unfair or unjust. And uh, keep in mind that that complaint is coming from people who are generally depraved, warped, and have very limited knowledge. So when we say that God is unfair, um, we say it with a very warped sort of sense of what is fair and what isn't fair. Um, and we can't forget that everyone deserves condemnation. And in Psalm 14.3, it says, there is none who do good, no, not one. And in Romans 3.23, it says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So when we talk about fairness, um, I mean, this is, this is something that we see in our children quite a bit. Sorry, kids, but you're too easy. Um, the idea here, the idea behind the complaint is that if God is fair, then it means that he has to treat everyone equally. But throughout the scripture, God doesn't treat everyone equally. God did not treat Moses the same way that he treated Pharaoh, right? God doesn't treat everyone equally. My kids do this thing where we have a cookie there's one cookie left, and it's amazing how their geometry skills improve when <clears throat> Bridget is going to split the cookie in two. Suddenly, they know how to calculate the area of a circle, uh, and they can tell you that this is off by a millimeter, and therefore, Anna got more of the cookie than I got, or vice versa. And this is our sense of fairness. What God, if, if, I, give, if I give Ethan this much of the cookie, then Anna has to have exactly this much of the cookie. But that is not the sense of God's fairness and equality, right? What is fair and just in the sight of God is nothing like what is fair and just in our sight. And so Paul, of course, anticipates and demolishes this objection that God is somehow not just in the sense that he elects some and doesn't elect others. And uh, in Romans 9, verses 14 and 15, which we've read, What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Uh, and I want to just quickly look at 19 to 24 as well, and then I'll comment on, on this. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? In other words, the, the second complaint is, well, if God has mercy on whom God will have mercy, then why are people who are not elected, still? why does God still find fault with them? Well, because they're still guilty, right? In other words, we're all guilty and under the condemnation of God until he regenerates us. And so, but Paul... His response is really astonishing in that he really doesn't even answer the objection other than to say, who are you, O man, to question God? Who are we to question God, to question God's sense of fairness, to question God's sense of, of justice? Why have you made me like this? Will the, will the molded say to the molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay? Again, this gets back to sovereignty. God is sovereign over everything he has created, including you and me. And he is, in fact, the potter over the clay. 
and so why would he why would he do this? Why would he have some vessels that are prepared for destruction and others prepared for glory? Well, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews, but also for the Gentiles. That's also a hard word, but it's a true word. And it's important that we, we don't come to God with this sort of accusation that he is not just and that he is not fair because he is. Um, and it is our warped sense of fairness that causes us to raise objections like this, right? God has to be much bigger in our eyes and we have to be much smaller in our eyes. Uh, and that's, I think that's part of the problem that we have as, as humans. And by the way, uh, I'll be the first to tell you that I really struggled with this passage of scripture for a long time. And Brid I've told, I think, Pastor and maybe a couple of the elders the story of how Bridget and I were brought to a kind of a reformed understanding of the faith really through Romans 9. I think that's the testimony of a lot of people. But we sort of came to it independently of, of one another in some sense. And um, we just praise God for bringing us to an acceptance of this truth. And in fact, in accepting it, it really was freeing in some sense, because we, we didn't have to question God uh, anymore. So, another objection that we will often hear is that election is inconsistent with man's free will. And uh, this is a debate that I guess we could have for the next several months, if you all wanted to. Uh, again, pastor's available for that. Um, Adam and Eve truly had a free will in the sense that they were not corrupted by sin uh, before they fell. Uh, but since the fall, we have all been corrupted by sin. And so even though it's true that we have a free will, we have a free will in this sense. We do make real choices. People make real free choices, but they make those choices in accordance with their nature, right? And so if you are unregenerated, you do make real choices. You choose to sin in different ways. You make choices in the morning. You decide what you're going to have for breakfast and what you're going to do today. Everyone makes real free choices. They, the, the believers make real choices. But we make choices from a position of being regenerated. And our nature and our disposition is to please God. Right? We don't have that disposition before we've been born again by the Spirit. And so it's important to recognize that our doctrine, Reformed theology, doesn't teach that people are robots. It doesn't teach that people are puppets and, and that God is pulling the strings on everything that we do. People make real choices. But God works through our choices. He's the primary cause of essentially the big things, and, second, and he works through the secondary causes of the choices that we make. So this complaint that there's this conflict between the notion of predestination and free will really, in my view, isn't much of a conflict, but I don't know, maybe I'm, maybe I'm too simple-minded about it, Pastor. Um, unregenerate man, remember, will not and cannot believe unto salvation, and so he has to have his disposition changed. And thank God that he does that. Okay, another complaint we hear is that election makes God the author of sin. Uh, what can that possibly mean? 
Well, uh, the complaint or the objection is that if God elects some unto salvation, that must mean that he actively prevents others from coming to faith. Uh, in other words, he actively produces sin in the non-elect, and he actively prevents them from believing. Um, some people refer to that as double predestination. And what we believe is that God actively works faith in the elect, but he does not actively cause the non-elect to sin. In other words, there's no reason for God to cause the non-elect to sin because they sin already. God is not the author of their sin. God is not the author of my sin. I'm the author of my sin. Um, and again, in Acts 13, 48, as many as were appointed to eternal life, those believed. So God actively works faith in the elect. In James 1, 13 to 15, let no one say that when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. So we do not believe that God is the author of sin uh, in the, in the non-elect. Okay. Um, some level the charge that election discourages holy living, and, uh, and that goes something like this. If people um, are saved and they know themselves to be elect and they know that their eternal destiny is heaven, then they can just go on living in any way that they please. And, uh, and they sort of have a license to sin. And I think you kind of know the answer to that. Well, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Um, we really don't see that a, that a person who has truly been born again of the Spirit of God and brought to faith in Christ um, can, can continue to live in sin, uh, at least as a pattern of their life. So this idea that election makes people dismiss the command that we be holy is really not a legitimate, not a legitimate one, I don't think. In 1 John 2.29, if you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. And in Romans 6.1 and 2, um, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? So uh, we really don't see that as a legitimate complaint. Those who are uh, who have died to sin, uh, do we still sin? Sure, but that's not the pattern of our life. All right, this is a big one to me, personally. Um, what's the point of evangelism? When you thought about, when you think about election, is that a question that's ever come into your mind? So why should we share the gospel? Why should I share the gospel with anyone? Well, one reason is that it's commanded. In Matthew 28, 19, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. That's a pretty good reason. Uh, the second reason is that God doesn't ordain the ends of salvation, but he also ordains the means by which people come to faith. Um, that is, the elect are called by hearing the word of God. And in Romans 10, 14, how will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? So uh, for those who think that, um, 
for those who think that election somehow diminishes the need to evangelize, I would argue that it does exactly the opposite. It's knowing that God uses the means of evangelism and preaching to call people to himself. What about John 3.16 and similar, similar universal verses or universalistic verses? Um, really, John 3.16 is, is not related to election. It just simply asserts that everyone who believes will be saved, which we all agree that anyone who believes will be saved. Um, so we reject the notion, as I mentioned, that all people are saved, that that's universalism. Um, there are other objections that we could talk about, um, though I may have already gone over time, Pastor, I apologize. Election, um, excuse me, there are some practical implications uh, for election. And one of them is that it gives us real security. I mean, we know our eternal home um, despite our earthly circumstances. Uh, in John 10, 29, Jesus says, my father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. There's no need to be anxious. Paul writes in Philippians 4, don't be anxious about anything. When we have this certainty that we have been elected by God, that our eternal destiny is known, we have a great deal of security in this world. Uh, despite what happens, what, whatever comes your way, whether it's good, whether it's bad, whether it's painful, whether it's joyful, it's all from God. And we have that assurance. Election leads to humility. Um, that's easy to see that we, when, we, when we understand that we played no part in our election and calling, um, it's really hard to be arrogant about it. Um, and we can, we can therefore have no sense of superiority to others, right? It is only by grace that God has saved us uh, called us and saved us, and so we can have no sense of superiority. Finally, um, election leads to greater praise and adoration of God. Um, one, of the, one of the things I love about the Reformed faith, and one of the things I love about our church in particular, is its emphasis on the greatness of God. That we gather on Sunday morning, not for ourselves, not for any other reason, but to glorify God's name. And we come together as a family to do that as God's chosen ones, God's children. And um, this doctrine really, I think, emphasizes the glory of God's grace more, more so than, than many of the others. Um, but he deserves our praise and adoration. And uh, I encourage you to read Psalm 111, uh, maybe even this evening if you get a chance. And uh, Romans 5, 8. God shows his love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. I mean, how can you not want to praise and adore a God who has done that for us? All right. Um, election leads to obedience, motivated by love. We talked about that a little bit. Um, if we love him, we will keep his commands. In 1 John 4, 9, it says, we love because he first loved us when we weren't lovable. And it encourages genuine evangelism. Um, we mentioned the Great Commission. We mentioned the fact that God ordains the means by which people are called. And this third point, I think, is important. When we believe that God calls people and that he uses his word to bring them to himself, 
Um, we don't need to depend on eloquent speech or trickery. We don't, you know, pastor isn't running some kind of hustle up here behind the pulpit on Sundays where he's trying to lure people into praying a prayer that, and then telling them that because they, they uttered a few words that they're saved. Well, that may be true and it may not be, um, but we don't need to do that, right? I mean, we can depend on the written and the preached and the spoken word of God to bring people to himself. And I praise God that he uses his word to do just that. Uh, that's a wonderful thing. Um, you know, I always appreciate the pastors who actually aren't eloquent. Um, I, I like listening to pastors who make mistakes sometimes. Because, sorry, I'm not, I'm not referring to you, pastor. Not at all. I'm talking about other people, other pastors. Um, that, that wasn't very nice. Sorry. Because pastors are real, pastors are real people. And they're preaching a real word, and they're preaching to real people, and they're not perfect. They're instruments of God, and we thank God for using them. Um, I think it gives us a lot of patience with other people when we know that the results don't depend on us. You know, when we are working with someone who is, seems to be seeking the Lord, and we're trying to teach them the things of God and, and explain salvation to them, and that they need to believe in Christ to be saved, they need to trust Him, they need to put... Um, their whole weight on him and believe in him. We can have a lot of patience knowing that, you know, I'm gonna do everything I can to plant this seed. I'm gonna tell them everything that I know to tell them. But at the end of the day, I lay my head down on the pillow when I sleep at night knowing that it's not at the end of the day dependent on me. And um, I know a lot of people who have a lot of angst about evangelism and, and, and sharing their faith and feeling that somehow it's, it's on them if someone doesn't come to Christ. Well, I'm here to tell you it's not on you, and thank God it's not. Um, you do the best you can in the sense that you're obedient to what God tells you to do. When God tells you to speak, you speak, you speak the truth, and you do it in love. And if you do that, we leave it in the Lord's hands. And hopefully that's what all of us do when we, when we preach the gospel to people. Okay, finally, I just wanted to close with um, a couple of references that I found really helpful. Um, I use the Bible, and I use the Westminster Confession, uh, a great book that is really good to understand this doctrine for people like you and me, lay people, is the book Chosen by God by R.C. Sproul. I think it's a, it's a, some of you may have read it, it's a great read, it's easy to read. Um, the, the Reformed Doctrine of Predestination by Lauren ba Baitner is... A classic on predestination, and there's a great summary of the five points of Calvinism um, by Steele, Thomas, and Quinn. And finally, if you really are ambitious, read The Sovereignty of God by Arthur Pink, and um, he'll have your head spinning for a, a little while. Um, but those are all great references. So um, I hope it's been somewhat clear. Uh, I hope you understand the distinction between election and justification and that our election is totally unconditional on anything that we do or say or anything in us. It's all of God and it's all of Christ. So um, let's close in prayer and then I think we'll wrap up the service after that. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. I thank you for the truth of this doctrine. I thank you that you um, 
You are not a God who is unjust or unjust. I, I thank you that you don't practice injustice. I thank you, Lord, for your grace that has been shown to us, that has been poured out upon us through, through Jesus Christ. Lord, we are not deserving of your salvation. We are, we were in the pit and you, you saw fit to pull us out of the miry clay. And there is nothing that we could have done to cause you to love us any more than you did and than you do. And Lord, I pray that that truth would resonate with us, that it would be deep in our hearts this week. And thank you for this opportunity to open your word together in Jesus' name.